you get your Bibles open to Genesis 2. And while you're doing that, um, I am privileged and just feel so honored to be here. Um, it's been a joy to be here the last few days and be blessed by all the teaching and just the community and celebrating of what God is doing. And so it's a joy to be here. I always consider it an honor anytime I get to speak from God's word to God's people and those where he is drawing. And many of you, maybe that's you, he's drawing you today. And so I just want to thank you for the honor. I, I never think it's uh, a right that I have for people to listen to me. It's always a privilege. And so I just want to thank you for that. I, if I were to title this message, I would call it Feeling Your Way to Jesus. If I were to title it. So if you like to title things, there's your title. Uh, the, the heart of this message is that the, the best place to be is to be in the place of need. And the, the access you have to being needy is through your feelings. Now, that's not a message we hear too often in church. Like, many of us are told, like, feelings are bad. You can't trust them. You know, you just got to hold to the facts and the truths, and your feelings will lie to you and all that. And I want to say that, though that may be true, in a lot of ways, I think we've misunderstood the gift of feelings that God has given us to awaken us to our needs so that we might find our way and feel our way to Jesus. And so that's the idea, the big idea. I want to unpack that together from the scriptures. But the reason why I want to unpack it, as Mike said, is I've, I have had a front row seat to people who have refused to feel their feelings and therefore not be needy. And in not being needy, they have refused to be in dependent relationship with God and with one another. And sadly, that leads to hurting people. Okay, that's what it leads to. Because the nature of your feelings is that God gave you your feelings to know your needs so that in knowing your needs, you would need people. And you would ultimately need God. That you would find yourself to be a needy person. And I would just say it again, to be needy is to be the best in the best place possible because without feeling your need, you'll actually not cry out to God and without feeling your need, you won't need anybody else and you'll find yourself really lonely and sadly often very abusive to other people, okay? And so I had that front row seat at Willow Creek. I was the student ministries director there and sadly got to see some of the brokenness their front row, I was, as Mike said, I stepped into what was Mars Hill, uh, the live preaching campus, and walked into a very broken situation, and we're still seeing God do repair. I can report, just so you know, because it didn't show up on the podcast, I, I saw elders repent, I saw people get healed, I saw people growing in their emotional maturity and health, they're still doing it. Just, just to report that, because that didn't get reported, and that gives me a lot of sadness, because I want you to hear that God is re redeeming and healing his church, and I'm one of those. I'm just going to speak like I'm honestly one of those guys who has had to wake up the last few years to my neediness, and in not being needy at times, I've, I've shown up like a self-sufficient man, and I'll be honest, it's led to a lot of loneliness. So I want to start in Genesis chapter 2, and this is, if you know the narrative, Genesis 1 is the macro picture of God creating all things, and it ends with, it's very good, after he creates men and women in his image. But chapter 2 is like the micro expression of how he did it, in particular created man and women. 
And so I'm going to start in verse 18, but just so you kind of know the narrative, we have now, man has been created, he's been put in the garden. Later we find out we get, he's given the name Adam. He is given work to do in the garden, but in the Godhead, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, we now know that later on in the narrative of the scriptures. We wouldn't have known it right away here, but we now know that. And we have little clues about it, like in Genesis 1, let us make man in our image. So we already know in the Godhead there's this beautiful community of mutual uh, like connection and, and interdependency within the, the Godhead. And so when God creates us, he creates us in his image to operate in the same way to need relationship, to, to exist in community. And so if there are any of you, by the way, that are operating in isolation, this is a warning for you today. Don't stay alone. And there are others of you who I know are here for the conference going forward maybe in starting a microchurch or you're listening online and you're, you're anticipating what that would look like. And I would just say, I don't care the size of the church, big or small, the tendency of all humanity is to move into isolation. And it's damaging to your, your being, and it's damaging to the very thing you're creating. And it tells the world a lie about God, frankly, because God doesn't live in isolation. So in this narrative, God says, verse 18, it's not good that the man should be alone. And I don't think Adam's hearing this. I just think this is the conversation in the Godhead. It's not good that man is alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heaven and brought, to them, brought them to the man to see what he would call them. Whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heaven, to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper fit for him. What do you feel when I read that? I want you to imagine, some of you are going like, oh great, you're going to make me feel today. Like, I would imagine that in the Godhead, this conversation, man is alone, but maybe he doesn't know it. Maybe he doesn't understand how bad it is to be alone. So we're going to bring every single animal, every bird, we're going to have him name them all. And you can imagine, similar to Noah, they're coming in pairs, you know, male and female, and he's naming all these creatures. Now, that's how long would that take? I don't know, but I would think it would take an awful long time. And if you could just imagine him going like, okay, there's another one, they're together. And another one, they're together. And they all seem to have a together. He keeps naming them, and after a while, it's like, I have no one. And I, I, I believe that God is giving Adam a gift in keeping him alone long enough so that he'll actually feel lonely for someone else. Now, my wife will ask, often ask me how I'm doing, and I'm learning to show up with my feelings, and so sometimes I'll say I feel lonely. And in our un, unfortunate codependency in, over the years, she would think that that meant she did something wrong. And now it's her responsibility to fix my loneliness. And some of you, that's how you do all your relationships, right? But, but me saying I'm lonely is not a, 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 some kind of indictment on though she's failed. It's, it's, a, it's a true statement about my neediness. And if I don't feel lonely, I won't want my wife. If I don't feel lonely, I won't be needy for relationship. And so some of you guys are going like, I'm going to avoid aloneness as much as possible, so I'm going to stay on my phone and just try to pretend like I'm not alone. But the reality is you're just avoiding your need. 
for relationship. And if you could just enter into this narrative and imagine what Adam is feeling and what God is determined to make sure he feels. He's wanting him to feel so lonely so that he will want so badly a relationship. By the way, some of you have been doing that for a long time. You're sitting here, you're with people, but you're completely alone. And in some ways, you don't want to tell the truth about that reality because you're wondering if there'll be anybody on the other side of that to show up in your life. There are some of your marriages right now, you're very lonely because you've been living, trying to not be needy for the other. Whenever I do marriage counseling, one of the first things I'll ask a couple is, tell me why you need her. Tell me why you need him. And if they have no access to their loneliness and their need for a companion, then we'll have no intimacy in that relationship. So God makes sure he feels the need. And in verse 21, the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. Now, I don't want you to miss this. In your neediness, God doesn't say, Adam, go figure it out. He puts him to sleep. Like, not only does he feel needy, but now he has no ability to meet his need by himself. Puts him to sleep. While he sleeps, he takes out one of the ribs, closed up the place with flesh, and the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman, and he brought her to the man. And now just listen to what he says. Then the man says, at last. That's longing fulfilled. That's me feeling so lonely and so hungry for a relationship that when God brings the woman, all I can say is, at last. Bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh, she shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Now, pause there for a minute. This is the picture. He's lonely, needy, can't fulfill his need by himself. God puts him to sleep, does surgery on him, and the woman is awake. God makes a woman, and she's looking likely at a man on his, like on his back, asleep, coming out of surgery. Now, I don't want you to miss that picture because it's not as though Adam was like, I'm strong and I'm mighty and let me come around you, woman. It was like, no, I'm weak and I'm frail and she's alive and she's strong and she shows up to meet a place of need that this man has. Women, can I hear an amen in the room? Like, that's huge. God is fundamentally saying, I want this man to know how needy he is so he will want this woman so badly because without her, he's in trouble. Yeah, we could say that a long time. The women are going, it's about time. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife. I don't have time to go into family dynamics, but I can tell all of you that you were brought up in a household that was probably broken. And as you leave it, you bring all that brokenness with you, and God redemptively can bring a new reality in the next one, right? And so he leaves father and mother. He holds fast or cleaves to his wife, and they become one flesh, just like in the Godhead, one God, three persons. This is the picture of what God's like. And the man and his wife were both naked, which means they were vulnerable, needy, 
aware of their limitations. Even without being too crass, aware of the physical need that they're gonna have to have another in order to be faithful, to be fruitful and multiply. Like the very body is telling them, I'm not enough. So God gives them the sense of their limitation, but they're okay with that. They're not ashamed of that because it's the very limitations that they have that leads them to need one another and lead God. That's, that's how the whole thing starts. And so sadly, too often in our context, and maybe some of you as leaders in churches are told, man, you can do it. And we're almost taught to believe so much in ourselves that any sense of limitation or neediness is a bad thing. And the problem with that is if you don't live with a sense of your limitation, you'll try to be God for everybody. And if you don't understand your neediness, you won't welcome anybody into your life. And that is at the heartbeat of what's broken in the church right now is we raise up people on such a high platform that when they fail us, we're disappointed and almost devastated because they are just like us. (laughs) just as needy, just as broken. I just want you to hear this. Anybody who gets on this platform and speaks, they're as needy as you. Anybody that goes out and leads a church, they're no better than anybody else. They're just a human God put in the right place with the right gifts and passions, but they're still needy. So I I want you to hear this. This gift of feelings is God's way of saying, you're needy. I want to say uh, kind of a phrase that maybe you can write down if you want, if that's helpful. Here's how it goes. If I feel, Adam felt lonely. If I feel, then I need. Okay? Some of you are already going like, I can't handle this feeling talk. Just stay with me. (laughs) If I need, then I will long for something or someone. And if I long, then I get desire stirred up. And if I have desire, then I'll have hope. Okay, if, if, if you ever heard about finding someone who's been starving for a long, long time, they, their hunger pangs shut down because they know they're not going to get anything. So in order to be able to make them hungry again, they usually put like a little drip of honey on their tongue to awaken their, their hunger again. So they'll desire food, so they'll actually eat it. And for many of us, a long time ago, we shut down our feelings because our feelings made us needy. And when we were needy, we desired and we longed, but we didn't get what we needed. And so we said, I'm not doing that again. That's dangerous. That wasn't safe for me as a kid. And I want to just make sure you understand this. When you were brought into the world, when you were born, you had 95% access to your feelings. A baby is crying because it's feeling without reservation. And a good parent understands a baby's cry to know if that's a sad cry, a, a hungry cry, a discomfort cry, a scared cry, a lonely cry. And if you're a good, attuned parent to the emotional place and experience of your child, when they cry, you know what they need. And if you, if you nurture them well, then you give them what they need, and then they learn to be okay with making their needs known through their, their feelings. And then they turn two and they get a voice right? And now they start really telling you how needy they are, and they make it all about me, and we call that terrible twos, and I don't want to call it that anymore, because I just want to say it's a human trying to figure out how to survive, survive in the world. And just cry out and say, me, mine, I, I need something. And, and, and if we just shame them for that, then eventually they go like, okay, I can't tell everybody what I need. And at some point in our life, we just stop 
feeling, and we impair it, we stuff it, because when we felt, we needed, and when we needed, we desired, and when we desired, we longed, but our longing was never fulfilled, and so we lost hope. And some of you in the room are going like, I don't want to hope in anything ever again. And some of you are going like, I, I, I don't want to go start a microchurch. Everything has been bad for me. I don't want to hope in anything. And I would just say, I hope that God wakes you back up to your neediness through actually telling the truth about where you're really at and that you find in him enough and in one another, you can actually be needy again. Because the church is supposed to be the most nurturing family on the planet. We should be the safest place to make our needs known. But we live in a broken world, so keep going. Chapter 3 in the story. As you know, the serpent comes in, maybe you don't know, you're new to the story, he's more crafty than any other beast of the field, this is the evil incarnate, this is Satan taking on form, and he comes, he says, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree of the garden, the woman says to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the tree in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the garden, tree that's in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die, and I just want to, I want to pause, and that wasn't on the screen, but I'm just reading that, just to catch you up, I love the fact that God put the tree in the middle of the garden, so that Constantly they're walking by going, huh, should we eat of that? God told us not to eat of it. But I think what he did, I think, because he's got all these other trees and all the provision is sufficient. But I think that it's in the middle of the gardens that they would walk by because to choose to eat the fruit of the tree is to say, we don't want to be needy for God ever again. That's, that's the evil one's lie is, if you eat of it, you'll be like God. Well, they're already made in the image of God, so that already was a, dumb kind of statement but what he's really saying is you won't need God like what, what would life be like if you didn't weren't needy anymore I mean don't you want to not have to need God and need his provision and be so needy and it's almost like he's going you, you could be in a place where you would never need him ever again do you want that and that's the lie we are being told every single day you could do this without him you can do this on your own. You can be a, an island. You can, you can do everything you want with all of your own power and strength, and you don't need anyone. And the evil one's going like, what, what, what about that life? And the woman sees the fruit, and it seems like, wow, this is pleasing to the eye, but it could also make me one wise. And, and wisdom here is the wisdom of the world, which is wisdom apart from God. It's wisdom that's coming out of my own self. And she eats the fruit and gives it to her husband who's with, him, with her, and the eyes of both of them are open, the scripture says in verse seven, and they, they now know they're naked. <laughs> they're already naked, it was already there. But now they're aware of their neediness, they're aware of their vulnerability, and now it's a bad thing to them. And so they sew fig leaves together and they made themselves loincloths. And now I want you to look in your Bible and follow with me. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and he said to him, where are you? I just want to pause there. Do any of you think God was like in the dark about where they were? Like this hide and go seek. He's like, gosh, I can't find him. I've been looking everywhere. <laughs> That's not what he was doing. God was inviting Adam to locate himself. 
Psychologists call this attunement. It's when I'm able to say, this is the truth about where I'm really at. And notice Adam's answer. When God says, where are you? He doesn't say, he doesn't give him like a GPS location, right? And I believe that all scripture is God breathed. It's inspired by God, that every single word that we've been given is intentionally put in place so that we might be instructed in who God is, what he's done, and who we are, and therefore how we ought to live as a result of it. And so what does he say? He says, where are you? And Adam says, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was, say it with me. That's a feeling. Don't miss it. I was afraid. Earlier he was lonely. Now he's afraid. Two feelings. But the problem here is, instead of being afraid and embracing his feeling of fear, he tries to impair his feeling. He tries to like act like he could handle this, like he can overcome this, like he can do this without God. So what does he do? He goes and he hides. He says, I, was, I heard the sound of you. I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And I just want to pause here because the beautiful posture of God towards Adam and Eve is that God comes to them in their brokenness and in their neediness, and he invites them to locate himself, which is attunement, which is God literally saying, like, can you imagine if you were with your little kid and they got a boo-boo, and you're like, how are you doing, son? I hurt. And you don't go like, it's not a big deal. You give them a Band-Aid, right? You attend to it. So you attune and then you attend and, and that's what's called attachment. So what does God do? He shows up and he says, where are you? I was afraid, so I hid. Well, that's Adam saying, I don't want to be afraid. Okay, by the way, fear is a gift, just to be clear. Fear is a gift. Some of you guys like, no, fear is bad. No, if you didn't have fear, you wouldn't cry out for help. Right? If you didn't know this was a messed up world, you wouldn't know that you need a savior. Right? That's why the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And don't misunderstand that. That's not fear of God, like God's scary and I'm running away. It's God has given you a fear that tells you the world is bad, broken because of sin, and God is good and can save you from it. Right? That's why wisdom literature is all about the fear of the Lord and being the beginning of wisdom, and then learning how to navigate through a crazy world with God. That's what it's all about. So I have fear, and it, the fear was meant to drive me to God. But for Adam, he doesn't want to be, feel his fear, so he tries to take control. So by the way, when you try to control your fear, you, you act like you could be in control of the world, and usually it leads to anxiety. And if you let that go for too long, it leads you to raging against everybody that threatens you. And that's what's been happening for the last couple years. People are raging because they're afraid. And if we could just sit with them and go, tell me about your fear. If we could attune with them in the reality of their fear, then we could maybe create a safe place for people to be needy again. But right now, nobody wants to be needy. Everybody wants to be in control. And how's that working for us? We are the most anxious we've ever been. I live in a context where 60% of the junior high students in, my, in our schools are on some kind of anxiety medication. 60%. Someone needs to sit down and attune with them and just let them tell them the truth that they're scared to death. 
Some parents got to sit with them and say, do you feel the pressure to perform and you're so afraid you're going to fail? Because in my context, it's getting the grades, it's doing the right sports, being in the right club so you can get in the right college, so you can get a scholarship. Because if you do that, then your life might work. And I'm telling you, these kids are so scared. If someone just would let them be human, let them feel their fear and not run away and hide behind their performance like our first parents did. And that's what happened. They're like, we, we can, now we have to be in control because we ate the fruit that said we want to be God. And when we try to be God, we have to be in control. And what does that do to you? You become overwhelmed and anxious. So the only thing you can do is run away or try to hide with your performance. That's exactly what Adam and Eve do. And God is so kind. He says, where are you? I was afraid. And notice God doesn't go like, well, don't fear. Get over it. By the way, when the Bible says in the New Testament, uh, you know, commands us, you know, do not be anxious about anything or fear not, it always connects it to because I'm with you. Don't miss that. Because always you're going to life going like, we should have no fear. And I'd go like, are you kidding me? If you teach your kids to have no fear, their lives are going to get destroyed. You want to go like, hey, you know what? The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. There's a lot of reasons to have fear, and there's a God who will answer you when you say, I'm afraid. And he will come be with you and help you and provide refuge and comfort. Yes. So if any of you are going like, man, I've been saying don't be afraid, I just say, like, be afraid. And then in your fear, cry out to the one who's in control, because you're not. Fear not, for I am with you. It's the kid who wakes up in the middle of the night with nightmares, and the first thing he wants is to get in bed with mom and dad and just have somebody say, it's going to be okay. Now, if he didn't have fear, he wouldn't run to mom and dad, and therefore he wouldn't have a relationship. Please get this. Without feelings, we don't know our needs. Without knowing our needs, we won't press into one another, and therefore we'll live isolated lives. And some of you are going like, yeah, I don't, I, you're still, this feeling stuff is getting me, I don't know. Read the Psalms. In fact, here's, here's how it works. I'm going to go back to Genesis 3. God attunes with Adam and Eve. Basically, he lets them show up honestly with their emotions. I was afraid. And then God creates a place that we call attachment. So attunement is the, the means by which I make my feelings known. Attachment is the safety I have that you won't leave me when I do. Okay, attachment is, is what's necessary for relationships to happen. We've got to have somebody who says, tell me the truth about what you're going through, and just so you know, I won't leave you or forsake you. And the Bible calls that hesed love, the hesed love of God, the loving kindness of God, the mercy of God that will never fail. And even if you're unfaithful, he won't be unfaithful. He will always be there for you, no matter how messy it is. And the psalmists are full of people going, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's fear and loneliness coming together. God, why do, my, why do my enemies seem to prosper? Do you not love the righteous? Like, I mean, the Psalms are messy explanations of someone's emotional world, and you get the Psalms wrong when you read them as though they are definitive statements of reality and truth. That's not what they are. They're the freedom that God has given his people to tell the truth about what they're going through. That's what they are. He's saying, attune with me. Tell me what's going on, and I'll attach to you. I will not leave you or forsake you. And at the end of the psalm, we get alignment. So attunement is, I can show up. Attachment is, God won't give up. 
And alignment is God will redirect me in the right way to go because I can trust his direction. That's how it works, okay? So if you read a psalm, especially Psalm 22, it's Jesus quotes from the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You keep going. You get, that's a tumen, okay? I'm scared to death. I'm alone. But if you keep going, it shows that God will not leave you. And then by the end, he will rescue you. And we know that Jesus' cry of my God, my God, why have you, not for, why have you forsaken me ends with God saying, I didn't. I raised you from the dead. I just want you to hear this. Jesus was really needy. He was the most neediest person that ever lived. Some of you are going like, what? Let me say it this way. Jesus was the perfect human. And Jesus was also the perfect human who said, I can do nothing apart from what I see the Father doing. What is that? That's attachment. That's a two-minute attachment. It's like, we're in line with each other. We're together in this forever and I will only do what you tell me to do. Attunement, attachment, alignment. Do you hear all of it? Okay, so, so and I'm just gonna walk through some of this with Jesus because some of you guys are going like, yeah, Jet, we, you know, Mike brought in some kind of psychobabble guy to speak and, and, and yeah, what does this have to do with Jesus? Like, we're all about Jesus here. By the way, so am I. <laughs> so I, I, wanna, I wanna take you there. Let's, let's go look at Jesus. You want to turn in your Bibles, turn to Matthew 5. We're going to get there in a moment. Think about how Jesus came into the world. Born of a virgin, taking on human flesh. This is the God of the universe making himself needy. He cried, made all of his needs known. I mean, I think we forget the, the humanity of Christ too often. And then somehow we think we have to be like God, and that to us means not needy. But God came in flesh to show us what God is like in human form. And that God in human form was a needy baby. And that needy baby cried out with emotions. And his mom didn't shame him for feeling Okay, now we don't know all that Mary did, but she probably, she's not perfect either, to be clear. But, but what is Jesus known as? What's one of his titles? Man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. Okay? This is a man who's crying a lot. Your picture of Jesus is like, this guy is tough, has it together, not affected by anyone. You got the wrong picture of Jesus. Because Jesus is weeping over Jerusalem, saying like a mother hen, I wanted to gather you together, my little chicks. I just weep over you. He weeps at his friend's tomb, Lazarus, even though he's going to raise him from the dead, and he knows it, but he still enters in the moment and attunes with the reality of death. He says in his sermon on the mount, Matthew 5, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom. That's the most needy place you can be. You're so stinking poor in your heart. And then the next verse, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. What is that? That's attunement, I'm sad. Attachment, there's someone with me. And I'm gonna receive alignment, comfort. And in this case, it's the comfort that God won't leave me, that his spirit will be with me. Let me just, let me do a check-in with you. Where are you at right now? Where are you? 
Anybody sad these days? I have a lot of sadness. My best friend took his life two years ago. I've watched some of my friends in ministry commit suicide. I'm seeing the church look nothing like Jesus these days, and I'm I'm just sad. And if I don't feel that sadness, I won't cry out for God to comfort me. And you know what will happen? I'll just harden my heart. Because when you try to manage or stuff your emotions, you try to not be needy. And when you try to not be needy, you become a hard person. And a hardened heart is the result. But instead, I say, I'm sad like my Savior, Jesus. And I need comfort from the Spirit. And I need to know that I have a high priest that can sympathize with my weakness because he was tempted in every way just like us, but without sin, Hebrews says. And yet he wept, even though he knew it was all going to get better. Like, don't miss that. Everyone's like, hey, it's okay. It's all going to be better. No, let someone just mourn the reality of what they're in. They need comfort. They don't need consolation. They don't need you to push them faster through the reality of what they're going through. They need to just invite the Holy Spirit to be the presence of God, bringing comfort just like Jesus received. And Jesus wasn't just sad. He was also really angry. He enters into the temple. And he looks at what they're doing. They're keeping people from coming to God. And he turns the tables in his anger. And it says, passion for your house has consumed him. Passion for the house of God. And we call the cross, the the walk to, to, to Calvary, the passion of the Christ. Why? He was so angry. And anger isn't a bad thing. Be angry and do not sin, Paul commands the church in Ephesus. Anger is a a passion for what it ought to be. And it gives you a voice to speak out. Martin Luther King was an angry man, and it was good because he spoke out against injustice. He had passion for what was right. When you say no to your anger and you stuff it, you become a depressed person. And then you just become apathetic. Who cares? Nothing matters. No, be angry. Be angry and do not sin and do not let the sun go down in your wrath, which is another way of saying don't stuff it in the dark. Just before that, Paul says, speak truthfully one another. Put away all falsehood. In other words, attune. Tell the truth about what's really going on inside. And then attach, be safe enough for people to handle it. Don't, don't walk away from each other. Be kind to one another. Let them show up. And then align where needed. You're angry. You're angry about the right stuff. Let, let's talk about how we can, we can pursue God's justice in this moment. Jesus also felt fear. Some of you are going like, what? Jesus was never afraid. Have you read the Garden of Gethsemane story? He's agonizing. His friends have abandoned him. He feels really lonely. Oh, couldn't you just stay with me and pray? I mean, that's a human. Jesus is needy for friends. Be with me in my worst hour. Don't leave me alone. I'm lonely. He's afraid. So he goes, no, he wasn't. Read it again. Do not wash over it with some kind of like dehumanization of Jesus Christ. He's agonizing. He's saying, Father, please. I mean, he's going to face crucifixion. If you aren't, don't have some fear about that, you're a sadomasochist. Like, you're a crazy person, right? He knows what he's going to go through. And he says, Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass for me, but nevertheless, not my will be done, but your will be done. When Jesus went to the cross, he knew what he was about to do. He wasn't just going to suffer and die in the most torturous way. He was going to take on all of our sin. Now, if that doesn't lead you to tremble, then you've misunderstood the nature of our wickedness and rebellion against God. 
And then he's on the cross. His friends have abandoned him. They've denied him. One has betrayed him. So he's hurting. Don't miss this. Jesus is hurting. That hurt. I just want you to hear this. It's okay. You have a high priest who was hurt for you. By his wounds you are healed. Don't just make that a metaphorical idea. He literally was wounded. He was really hurt for you who are hurt. So you can say and attune with him and others, I'm really hurt. My husband treated me in this way and it hurt. And I need someone to attune with me. And I know Jesus does, but I need you to be the presence of Christ physically with me, reminding me that I have a high priest who can feel what I went through. And then in in this attunement, will you stay with me in it long enough? Don't fix me. Don't hurry it up. Let me just sit in it a bit. I, I need to feel it so that I'll know how badly I need him to heal me. And then I experience the balm of the Holy Spirit and a community of friends who will not leave me, align me to the reality that he can heal. No matter what the wound, he can heal. Because I have a high priest who was wounded for my healing. And then from the cross, talk about lonely. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's the loneliest statement Jesus ever makes. And now we know the rest of the psalm, and you go read Psalm 22, because we know ultimately God is for him. But even Jesus felt that. I just want you to hear that. If you've you've in your life felt so lonely, feel like God has forsaken you, you have one who gets it. Jesus knows what that feels like. And he doesn't hide it. I love this about Jesus. He isn't up there going like, I can make it through. I'm not going to tell anybody how hard this is. Just gonna grin and bear it. I'm gonna gonna make it. No, you got someone weeping from the cross in agony, weeping, crying out in loneliness and hurt for you, for me. Because he wants you to know it's okay to be needy, it's okay to cry out, it's okay to tell the truth about what you're going through. And I'm telling you, when we talk about being a church that wants to be on mission to the world, the world is dying for real people who will be that honest about how much they need God. You know why most of the world doesn't want to hear our gospel good news? Because they're not needy for it. They don't know how much they need someone who will never leave them or forsake them, someone who can heal their hurt, someone who will come be with them in their sadness and comfort them. They don't know that it's okay to be angry at what's going on in the world, that there's a God who's angry with them. They don't know that. And the good news of the gospel isn't just that our sins are forgiven, it's that you have a high priest who can sympathize with everything you go through and will not let you ever be alone in it. And if you tell him you need him, he will be with you. And if we, the church, will believe that together, we will be with each other and with him to meet us in our neediness. Where are you at? 